and good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. And welcome to another edition, a very intriguing and rather uh, impromptu edition, I might add, of The Other Side of Midnight for this May 1st, 2021. Welcome, one and all. Um, I had a number of things planned tonight, and as Murphy would have it, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. So we're going to be doing a lot of improvisation. Let me give you a kind of a kind of a soundbite to to let you know what's going on. Yeah, and uh, at this point, you know, we are targeting off the coast of Panama City, Florida for tonight's splashdown. We've gotten several good weather reports. We have a live astronaut landing right in the middle of the other side of midnight tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to flip back and forth between here in the land of enchantment, uh, Houston, the Houston uh, uh, Manned Space Flight Center in Houston, Texas, and SpaceX, which is, of course, in Hawthorne, California, Southern California, because we have four astronauts coming back to Earth. They have separated from the space station. They are literally in transit. It takes about six and a half hours to come back. This is mission control. So let's kind of dip in and listen for a second. So uh, we have a question here. How long is the flight from deorbiting and splashdown? Um, so the last hour, so from approximately 11 p.m. PST until about midnight, uh, it's going to be exciting. So uh, that's when the deorbit burn will happen. And at the end of that hour, we'll, we're expecting to splash down. So um, about an hour from when we start that deorbit burn, we should be expecting to splash down. Uh, and then, you know, after that, recovery operations will begin where we will send out boats, make sure everything is safe. And then we will start to uh, scoop up the dragon and then eventually open up the hatch and, uh, you know, welcome our astronauts back to Earth. Uh, after their six-month journey in uh, in space. Speaking of splashdown, we are getting some more good news. The WB. Anyway, that is SpaceX in Hawthorne, California. There are two commentators. Uh, there's also a representative uh, of NASA at uh, Houston at Mission Control for the International Space Station and the Dragon flight. This is the return of the Dragon spacecraft uh, resilient. Uh, Remember, they have two now. One's called Resilient. That's the one returning tonight. They've been up there for about six months. Crew One, which are four astronauts. uh, I don't remember offhand their names. We will give that to you a little later on when it becomes relevant. But they they are returning this evening. And toward the end of the other side of midnight, they will be splashing down. Again, this is nothing like the, quote, good old days. <clears throat> when we had the uh, Gemini and Mercury and um, uh, Apollo spacecraft who had to splash down somewhere in mid-ocean and you had, you know, half of the sixth fleet out looking for them with aircraft carriers with illustrious names like the Kearsarge, which was a major aircraft carrier in World War II, um, go out and pick them up. Uh, this is all very different. They are... Uh, splashing down tonight just off the coast of Panama City within uh, eyesight of the coast of uh, northern Florida there, the Panhandle. And uh, the pickup crew is a private recovery 
ship called the, um, I think it's the Good Navigator, and it's at night. This is the first splashdown of a crew returning from space, an American crew, uh, to have splashed down at night um, on Earth in 53 years. We haven't done this. I say we as a nation. For 53 years since the flight and return of Apollo 8, which was December of 1968. That was my baptism of fire with Walter Cronkite and the whole crew at CBS. And I must say I've had some interesting uh, memories this afternoon as we were getting ready for the show. And I was figuring out how to kind of plug in what's going on. So we'll mute them for the time being because for the next few hours they're literally uh, cruising around the Earth getting in the right position to do the deorbit burn, which is about a um, um, three-minute burn of the uh, rocket engines on the spacecraft on Resilient, which will slow them down by a few hundred miles an hour, such that their trajectory then intersects the upper atmosphere about half a world away. And they reenter for several minutes, six, seven minutes, and then they come down on parachutes and will land I am told, and the reason, you know, we'll, we'll get into this later on in the morning, but the reason they're doing this at night is not because they planned this, but because the weather had kind of planned this. So when we get to that part of this morning's uh, conversation, uh, we'll dip back into mission control and listen and see what it is they are, in fact, doing. Here. So they are currently reading questions with hashtags on Twitter. So um, we will... Proceed. Uh, I want to start this morning by uh, going through a few news items, and then we'll move into our space uh, conversations because we have a lot of interesting things going on simultaneously in space. We have um, uh, SpaceX returning its astronauts. Actually, they're NASA astronauts, but they're returning in the first commercial vehicle named Resilient that was commissioned by the U.S. government many, many years ago to supplement the shuttle and other modes of transportation, like renting very expensive seats from the Russians, which were, you know, I forget how many tens of millions of dollars per seat to fly up on a Soyuz and fly back down. So um, Musk is much cheaper and it's much more modern. It kind of looks really 21st century if you've ever seen the uh, Dragon spacecraft. Um, anyway, item number one on our news tonight, if you go to, if you're new to the show, uh, we do parallel images and videos and other things with this radio program, which stretches around the world. We're in 197 countries, so if you're listening to us, um, for instance, in India, uh, our heart goes out to you because you are having an extraordinarily bad time. Let me Let me swing into item number one. There is now research. Remember, I've been saying from the beginning with this COVID-19 thing that we are under attack. This is a either a message of a you know, almost draconian level, or it's an actual effort to do something geopolitically down here on Earth by means of a virus, which may is one of the scenarios we've been looking at seriously – have been deliberately injected into the terrestrial biosphere from orbit. The bad guys in this scenario would be the breakaways, uh, 
the Nazi civilization at the end of World War II took all their extraordinarily advanced R&D, particularly in the field of anti-gravity. This was the Gemmler-Kammler group there in the um, uh, eastern regions of Czechoslovakia and Germany, and um, they were doing some really remarkable research uh, coming off decades of rather secret research into the control of gravity, into uh, exotic uh, hyperdimensional energy sources, which would give you unlimited electricity. And so that all seemed to have come together. And one of the scenarios that we've been following for many, many years, uh, apropos of um, certain researchers who have proposed this based on a variety of, of circumstantial evidence, that there was, in fact, there is, in fact, a breakaway human civilization which took this technology and many, many humans at the end of World War II, Germans, and fled to space and have been there developing a separate so-called breakaway civilization for the last 70-plus years. Well, in this scenario, at some point, and now we touch on the work of people like Joseph Farrell and others of his ilk who have been looking at the Fourth Reich, the idea of a resurgence of the whole Hitlerian scenario that at the end of the war, uh, people like Bormann were carefully planning for the resurgence, the renaissance of the Reich, and it would be called the Fourth Reich. And they, of course, um, are, uh, uh, if, if, if this scenario obtained, and Keith, you need to look at my... Uh, one computer screen, something just happened and I lost, I lost my working um, visual. So if you can go and kind of take a look and see what happened there. Anyway, the breakaway civilization idea is that we've had these separate development tracks between terrestrial civilization, no, not on the Mars machine, on the other machine, uh, separate development tracks for 70 plus years. And at some point, the Fourth Reich wants to resume what the Third Reich started, which is basically to take over the world. <clears throat> Under that scenario, given the fact that this planet bristles with all kinds of military hardware, that's remember how uh, the Strategic Air Command used to say, peace is our profession? Well, that's kind of a euphemism. Um, war is humans' pr uh, profession. In large countries, small countries, two-bit countries, major superpowers, war seems to be the first and last thing that we fund to the tune of billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars spread around the world each and every year. Well, if you're seeking to invade and take over a planet in the beginning decades of the 21st century, the problem would be, well, how do you do it? Well, obviously, the way you would want to do it would be to start an offensive, which initially looks like just bad luck. You know, pandemics come, pandemics go, viruses jump from species to species. We've had several fits and starts over the last decade or so, <clears throat> SARS being uh, uh, the most interesting and, and, and relevant in terms of this conversation. So the scenario that I and a few others, like Dr. Chandra Wickramasinghe, have been exploring is that COVID-19 
is not produced, was not produced here on Earth. I know the Chinese have been indicted. Um, my feeling has been from the beginning that China was selected as the first victims because whatever they were doing before, um, if you imagine the breakaways have uh, designs on the planet, one of the ways that it would be helpful would be if you have terrestrial allies in terms of taking over the planet. And if the uh, if the Chinese were the equivalent of the Germans in World War II in collaboration with, you know, let's say some nasty folks upstairs and they got out of line, one can again paint a scenario where COVID-19 appeared in Wuhan because it was a way of slapping down the Chinese for getting out of bounds, for getting out of range, or as the Intel guys like to say, for getting off the reservation. So what could the Chinese have done to incur the wrath of the breakaways if they were working together? Well, the Chinese have sent two missions, two unmanned missions to the moon. Chang-3 landed on the front side in Mari Imbrium. Um, Chang-4 landed for the first time of any space program in the modern era on the far side. Uh, and the Chinese have been publishing data, including some remarkable images showing, as I've been saying for many, many years, that there are all kinds of ancient artifacts spread across the moon, including remnant domes, which are visible above the horizon. And the source of this imagery is no less than the um, uh, People's Liberation Army, the official mainstay of the Chinese Communist Party in terms of uh, keeping uh, the Chinese citizenry in check <clears throat> and presenting their um, you know, defensive posture to the world. So in terms of sourcing, we know that the imagery coming from the Chinese is accurate. We know that it compares one-to-one -one with what the Apollo astronauts photographed on film many, many decades ago. Um, and so if they were, shall we say, as an American idiom goes, telling tales out of school, um, the COVID-19 response could have been a way of basically bringing them back in line. The problem is that it, it got out of China and that could be due in part to the structure of the Chinese uh, social system, uh, the kind of Chinese uh, state of mind, which is at all costs, you never want to lose face. So obviously the Chinese would do everything to cover up the fact that they were victims and not uh, the progenitors of this. And in so doing, they allowed it to escape to the rest of the world. It didn't close off the country, the flights, and so it spread around the world, which may have been, again, in part due to the design of whoever, you know, introduced this into the biosphere. The reason all of this is now current is because many countries have managed the COVID-19 situation far better than we have. We were atrocious in terms of handling the disease itself. We did literally for the last year everything wrong. I mean, everything from the lack of testing to the lack of proper you know, public education 
to the lack of, of proper medical stores. Everything that could have been done wrong in the face of a pandemic was done wrong. The one thing we're doing right now is this whole vaccination program, which, of course, is going to raise eyebrows from a lot of people that I know because they are dead set against vaccines. And that's a whole other program, which, again, we're working to to find the right people. It's not surprising that in this current political climate, credible virologists and immunologists uh, do not want to go into the public spotlight and put, you know, things on the record regarding their perceptions of how this disease should be treated. So we're having problems in lining up the appropriate guests, uh, but we're, we're, um, we are persevering and uh, we will report to you when we have assembled uh, those individuals and can provide the kind of quality show with decent and, and um, important content that the subject certainly deserves. But again, in, in, in lieu of that, in the, in the scenario that I have been, shall we say, um, proposing, that we are under attack, one of the very peculiar things is that many nations which had this under control, they had strict lockdown measures, they had quarantines, they eradicated it almost to where they had no cases or just a few cases. Suddenly, around the world, we are seeing flares and resurgences to where something like 400,000 people a day um, are coming down with with COVID-19 in India. And the death toll is approaching 5,000 people per day. They're having to cremate bodies in parking lots and families are having to to get tickets and get in line so that their loved ones can be um, properly disposed of because of course burial under these conditions is is just it's horrible it i mean the conditions there have gone from grim to horrible to execrable in a very short period of time and they're not the only part of the world that has seen this extraordinary resurgence after the disease was appropriately managed in the weeks and months before raising the question if someone upstairs is literally injecting new strains of the virus down here on earth, literally lobbing whatever containers into the atmosphere and it spread like an aerosol through the air, whatever containment you try to practice on the planet will do you no good because if you're unaware that it's coming in from overhead, it's coming in from orbit, it's coming in from somewhere outside earth, from the solar system, as a directed attack, then everything you're doing is going to be for naught. And so far, I know of no official governments or research organizations or agencies or, you know, uh, medical institutions, anybody that's seriously looking at this as an attack from someone on all of us here on the planet. And of course, unless you understand that you're facing an enemy, you're not going to do anything to prevent the enemy from doing what it's doing. Um, That gets us, of course, into the terrain of what would be the point? What would be the purpose? Well, the purpose, I think, is to be seen in item number one. Remember, I've been saying 
for many, many months now that death is not the worst case scenario, as horrible as that sounds, from COVID-19. There are a huge group of people, estimates range from 10 to 30% of people who have come down with the virus, who do not, over weeks and months afterwards, really, truly recover. They're called uh, long haulers, and there are now serious medical attention by the establishment, by the mainstream, on what is behind this problem of the so-called COVID long haulers. And item number one, there is research now coming out of Texas, which says that COVID-19 has the capacity in laboratory tests and experiments to literally alter human genes. Remember, I've said from the beginning, the tragedy of death is compounded by the tragedy of those who survive but do not recover. And again, if you want to really hobble the enemy, the idea is not to kill the enemy. The idea is to make a huge portion of the enemy so sick, the rest of the enemy has to take care of those who are alive but need medical attention. And that, of course, results in very drastic and dire scenarios uh, down the road. I'm not saying any of this is true. I'm saying there's enough evidence, enough circumstantial evidence that we should be paying careful attention and set up research programs to determine if it's true. Because if that were the case, there are other things that could be done, uh, obviously not here, but in space itself. There are such entities as the so-called secret space program. There's a new um, uh, military branch called the Space Force, which President Trump was able to get authorized through Congress over the space of uh, four years. There are some other things that could be brought to bear, but you have to know that you're under attack before any of those can be brought to bear on the situation. So that's item number one. Item number two, um, the Indians, because they're now in this dire, absolutely execrable situation, they are literally flagging mutations that they have found in amongst their population, which appear to be unique to any place in the world. Now, see, one of the vicious things about a biological attack is that there is such uncertainty as to the natural progression of the disease, like mutations. The way mutations work with viruses is you do have a whole lot of people, <clears throat> millions and millions of people, and they're transmitting the virus between themselves in uncontrolled ways. Well, each new person who is infected becomes basically a host in which the virus can mutate, can change genetically to become more adapted, more virulent, more transmissible, more longer lived, uh, capable of replicating faster, all these things in the kind of Darwinian selection process. And there is no real way from outside to know whether the various variants, as they're now called, or the various genetic strains which have appeared are part of the natural, very, very rapid, um, pandemically accelerated mutation and evolution of the virus naturally, 
or if someone actually in some laboratory somewhere <clears throat> has one from column A and one from column B, and they decide, okay, now's the time to introduce the next variant to get around the defenses, which, of course, the only defense we have are isolation, which, of course, is crippling economically. The so-called lockdowns have not been, you know, well-received in, in major parts of the world, not the least of which is here in the U.S. But the other thing, the vaccines, is receiving extraordinary resistance, which now appears to be meeting the vaccine um, uh, promoters who are trying to develop this, I, I hate this term, this so-called herd immunity. It's population immunity. But the idea that we keep talking about herd immunity, it makes one think of cattle herds and, you know, people can be programmed. We used to call them sheeple, et cetera, et cetera. So this, this language, you know, the linguistics of the pandemic are as important to pay attention to, I believe, as the pandemic itself. Into this melange, we now have Indian scientists who, of course, have every encouragement you can possibly imagine to get to the bottom of what's going on and try to, you know, prevent the ultimate collapse of the Indian society. And, of course, given now that we have air travel, what starts out in India does not stay in India. That's why beginning Tuesday, the United States is now curtailing all, all flights from India except for uh, U.S. nationals in an effort, again, to physically isolate these variants in India from the rest of the uh, from the rest of the population, starting, of course, with the U.S. population. Will all of these measures work? Well, only if we understand the true situation of the problem we are confronting. And remember, in any war, the first casualty is truth. So we have a large constituency claiming, even now, that COVID-19 is a hoax. It's a scamdemic. It's a plandemic. It's, it's uh, you know, completely designed to um, make Bill Gates another, you know, trillion dollars or something. It's, in other words, all of the disinformation feeds into the lack of appropriate prophylactic measures to stop the disease itself, which, of course, could be emanating from sources upstairs that basically want to confuse governments and populations to such a degree that populations themselves will help spread the disease by even not doing simple things that will prevent the spread, like masks, like distancing, like uh, staying home, et cetera, et cetera. Because, of course, major parts of the planet can't stay home. They have to work. Um, we're extraordinarily fortunate to have large numbers of people in our society who've been able to work from home, but not everyone. And of course, those people are incredibly disadvantaged, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, bottom line, if you want to take over the world, you want to soften it up in a way that is, um, shall we say, ultimately fatal, ultimately winds up with the planet giving in and asking you know, for relief, this is one of those horrible scenarios that I think should be taken very seriously. Well, we are at the bottom of the hour. Uh, we still have astronauts returning. You are on the other side of midnight. 
My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we come back, we have more news to cover. So don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Kaufman, natural healing consultant. Welcome to the other side of the news, where they're open to hearing the truth and take it seriously. The first thing you got to look at is the methods, like nothing else matters, because that's where they describe the experiment. So then you can decide if what you can conclude from the experiment, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And that's really, really important because... You know, they make false claims and people don't understand how to use statistics and all these things could be misleading. What I notice that they do now is they put the methods section at the very end. And in some papers, it's in a separate document that's like an addendum. So in other words, they just present the the results and conclusions and an introduction section and nobody looks at the methods. But that's the most important thing, because if you don't know that, you don't actually know what they did. Because, you know, there's a lot of art to experimental design. And, uh, you know, some people can be very clever about it. Some can be very elegant about it. But there's also like many ways that things could be fudged. And there's books on this, right? Like one of Bill Gates' favorite books, How to Lie with Statistics. Then, you know, you have the John Ioannidis article, which is one of the most highly cited papers where he says more than half of all published research is false. Right. So mm-hmm. but but how many scientists, when they go to read a paper, say there's a 50 percent chance that this article is false. So I better read it really carefully. Right. They don't do that. But all this clinical research, it's really just it's really marketing. It, that, that's what it is. It's not actual research. With this the vaccine trials, you know, it, it's just they basically designed it exactly perfectly to show what they could say. You know, that bogus 95% effectiveness. Uh, that's the, the relative risk reduction of having a test. And it's not even the overall risk reduction would be like 0.4%. 
but they describe it that way. It's a statistical trick where they could say 95%. And they also defined the outcome, and then they had to wait seven days after the vaccine, but all the people who got sick within that seven days didn't count. You know, all kinds of uh, tricks. Why. They're 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 experts at this. They know yeah. they know what they're doing, and and it's really hard to even figure out what they're doing. Dragon SpaceX four into your cameras. Go ahead for interior cameras. When you're ready, request a go to uh, come back aboard with interior cameras. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. I said tonight was going to be kind of an improv. Uh, some of our folks are under the weather, so they're unable to be with us. Others uh, have certain, shall we say, um, emergencies they are dealing with. So they can't be with us until later in the uh, in the show. So I'm kind of on an improv here, but fortunately, I think you can say fortunately, we have a lot of things to cover. So um, let me let me kind of uh, take up where I left off. Okay, item number three. Um, this week, something very um, uh, long expected but kind of tragic happened. We lost another. Uh, of the Apollo 11 astronauts, uh, Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot during Apollo 11, uh, died in, in his uh, uh, early 90s earlier this week. And there are accolades coming in, of course, from all over the world. Michael Collins was a very interesting guy. He had he he had a military background. He was a, uh, a major general ultimately in the U.S. Air Force. But after his Apollo 11, uh, you know, step into history, um, few people remember Michael Collins because, of course, all the attention, as it should have been, was on uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Uh, Armstrong is gone. Now Collins is gone. That leaves um, uh, Buzz Aldrin as the only surviving member of the Apollo 11 crew, the first man, literally, uh, the only man now left who walked on the moon um, in the first mission. But getting back to Collins, um, Collins was intriguing because even though he was a, a you know, a kind of a protege of a military family and he became a, you know, a flag officer himself, he really had more of the soul of a poet. If you read any of his books, I would commend his books because they're some of the most thoughtful and reflective and philosophical treatments of the journey of Apollo 11 of any of the, I don't know, hundreds of books that over the years I've read on the mission that I was very fortunate to have been with Cronkite and the CBS News crew to cover as it actually was happening, gosh, many, many, many years ago. How time, how time does fly. So if you want to read some background on uh, Michael Collins, um, item number three, which, of course, is the foreground to what's going on right tonight. In fact, let me go back to our air to ground and see if, in fact, we have uh, uh, live air to ground from space. 
hijack the astronaut. Okay, that is SpaceX. Uh, They're in Hawthorne, California. Um, as I said, toward the end of the show, somewhere between um, 12.30 my time and 1 o'clock my time, you can do the appropriate conversion uh, yourselves, um, they will be landing uh, off Panama City. Um, as I was saying before we went into the break, uh, the reason that they're doing this for the first time in 53 years at night is because there are two major fronts, one that just left and the other coming in, and the daytime winds, apparently in the two landing sites off Florida that are chosen, one off Panama City and the other one literally off Tampa, uh, the winds during the daytime and the wave heights were out of range. They were too extreme for a safe landing. But it turns out, as you may or may not have noticed, at night, winds, because of lack of solar heating, tend to die down. So the wave height right now in the Gulf of Mexico, literally just off the coast of Florida there at Panama City, the wave height is less than a foot. The ocean is like a sea of glass. And in another hour or two, um, maybe an hour, uh, there will be a quarter moon just after last quarter moon rising. So there will be moonlight. Uh, the boats, of course, the, the, uh, the recovery uh, fleet has uh, lights, powerful lights, searchlights, et cetera, et cetera. And the spacecraft has strobes uh, as it comes down on the parachutes. It has radio. It has locator beacons. So they practiced for this, and it was very interesting to to listen to the spokesman for a uh, commercial crew out of NASA headquarters this afternoon talking about the fact that this was the best choice that they could make, which, of course, makes it reflect back 53 years to the night landing of Apollo 8 when I was working for the first time with Walter and the CBS crew. The longer one lives, the more history seems to, if not repeat itself, it certainly does seem to rhyme. Okay, item number five. I think we're up to number five. Um, speaking of SpaceX and Elon Musk and the return of the uh, Crew-1 tonight, uh, first commercial crew in the history of spaceflight being flown to and back from a U.S. NASA spacecraft, i.e. the International Space Station, uh, in a private vehicle. And so that's why you hear uh, in the background, you hear Mission Control from um, California. They're in Hawthorne because Mission Control is now spread between two states, two uh, separate parts of the continental United States, Houston, Texas, and Hawthorne, California. And uh, it, it's interesting that in, in in light of all that's going on, the fact that uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk has demonstrated the prowess to loft and bring back safely commercial crew for the first time, there is a kind of a wrinkle which has developed. I, I, I told everyone, you know, a couple of three weeks ago that NASA had decided as part of the Artemis program, the huge return to the moon by 2024 program that uh, President Trump initiated, they've decided, they've awarded the contract to develop the lunar lander uh, to Elon Musk, to SpaceX. Uh, 
Well, there were two other major companies in the running. One, a company out of West Virginia, uh, I forget the name of it, it's basically a military contractor. And the other is Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin. Jeff Bezos, of course, is one of, if not at this week, the wealthiest man in the world. You know, he created Amazon. Who doesn't know Amazon? He owns the Washington Post, among a whole bunch of other things that he owns is involved in. And Blue Origin is his space uh, organization, which has developed or has been developing several different stages of space flight from tourist flights up and down, kind of like uh, Alan Shepard many, many decades ago, except this will be, you know, like four or five passengers in a capsule that goes up 60 miles in an arc and then comes back down and lands um, uh, on the launch pad like it began. Uh, not true orbital flight, but it will give you zero gravity. It'll give you incredible views. They will be charging tourists. Um, they also have other programs. Uh, that one is called New Shepard. Then they have a rocket called New Glenn, which is going to be an orbital craft. And then they have uh, uh, one, I think they call it New Armstrong, named after Neil, of course, that will be taking um, uh, human uh, crews to and from the moon. Well, Bezos and Blue Origin were one of the three companies that NASA had in the final run to award the contract to develop the lander, the lunar lander for the big Artemis uh, official U.S. government NASA program to return astronauts to the moon by 2024. And the winner of that contest uh, was SpaceX. Well, the other two companies now, the the uh, defense supplier that I can't remember the name of, and uh, Blue Origin, Bezos' company, they have both uh, um, sued NASA legally in court to prevent them from executing the contract with Musk so that uh, Musk has now had to halt lunar lander work pending these contract challenges. Again, these other companies have flown and demonstrated nothing in space. Not quite sure about the West Virginia company. They may have been a subcontractor on some flights that actually made it to orbit, but certainly Bezos has not done anything in space. <clears throat> and yet they are suing the provider who has not only developed a manned space flight system, the Dragon spacecraft, which has successfully now sent, you know, a crew to the station, kept them there six months, and literally, as we talk tonight, is in the process of bringing them home. But they also have developed this extraordinary, reusable, landable, first-stage rocket technology, which is drastically cutting the price of conventional rocket access to and from space, making it possible for the commercial democratization of space I mean, this is what Musk has done. This is what SpaceX has done. And when NASA awarded him the contract to do this on a bigger scale for the Artemis program, suddenly his competitors are suing him in court because, of course, that's the way the legal system these days works. You know, meritocracy be damned. Anyway, that will all sort itself out. But I just thought it was kind of interesting as a backstory to what's going on tonight with the return of the astronauts. Uh, from the space station, all of its commands to make sure that it is and there is uh, SpaceX headquarters, 
in Hawthorne, uh, talking to its audience, narrating the ultimate return of the uh, uh, Crew Dragon uh, crew, the four astronauts coming back tonight um, to Earth to its worldwide audience through both NASA television as well as through its own uh, web resources. Which brings us to item number six. While all this has been going on, the Chinese kind of quietly launched on a huge rocket, uh, Long March 6 or whatever it is, the core module of what's going to be a uh, 10-rocket launch privately run by the Chinese space station in competition with the International Space Station, which, of course, has Russian participation, European participation, and was built and designed by the United States many, many, uh, well, over 20 years ago. Um, Why are the Chinese putting up their own space station? Because some harebrained scheme hatched in the Congress, kind of like what happened after John Kennedy was killed and his you know, a proposal of a collaboration between the Soviet Union and the United States in the Apollo program was deep-sixed in the Congress by deliberate legislation that prevented us from cooperating with the Russians back then. Well, the same very uh, short-sighted bureaucrats in the Congress have done the same thing with the Chinese. We are We are forbidden by law. NASA is forbidden by law from collaborating with the Chinese government. So what do the Chinese do? Since they want to become the only reigning superpower on the planet, they have put together their own uh, space program. They've landed on the moon now with unmanned spacecraft twice, once on the front side, once on the far side. Uh, And just a few days ago, they lofted the core module of what's going to be their own uh, space station called Heavenly Harmony. I kind of like the way the Chinese named their missions. Remember the mission which is currently orbiting Mars tonight, waiting to land, waiting, waiting, waiting. We don't know what for. I have some suspicions, which we'll get into uh, later in the morning. But uh, they call that um, questioning heaven or questions of heaven. And the space station is going to be called Heavenly Harmony. I wonder if they're going to invite international participation like the ISIS station has done. Um, With a name like Harmony, uh, could they not? Well, one does not know. Now, the the weird part about this, this mission that was launched just last week, successfully putting the core module of the Chinese um, Heavenly Harmony space station in orbit, is that the rocket, if you go to look at my number six, in radio with pictures, that rocket, it's huge. Unfortunately, it also made it into orbit along with the core module of the space station. And, you know, in deference to Newton, what goes up, <clears throat> if it's not kept up in low Earth orbit, eventually will come down. And this rocket is big enough, has enough mass that all of it may not vaporize or burn up on reentry. In which case, um, some pieces of the Chinese rocket that launched their core space station module could survive entry and actually impact the Earth. 
It's one of those good news, bad news things. The good news is most of the earth is covered by water, so the odds are overwhelmingly it's going to splash down if any pieces survive reentry in the ocean. The bad news is it's so massive that some pieces will survive, we are told, just like Skylab many decades ago, um, will survive entry into the atmosphere and can reach the ground. And if it falls on a major city, well, uh, that could be, um, I could give someone a bad hair day. What I find is peculiar, unlike uh, SpaceX and Musk, who with their second stage of the Falcon 9 rocket, remember they recover now the first stage, landed in either back at the Cape or on a drone ship somewhere in the Atlantic. The second stage would do the same thing uh, as the Chinese rocket is doing, except Musk has put in place in the second stage a um, computer program that allows them to burn one of the engines so that it slows down just enough so they can have a controlled entry uh, somewhere in the South Pacific or North Pacific or the Atlantic or wherever. And so it can be safely re-entered without endangering anybody on land or in more populated parts of the uh, planet. Not so for this major Chinese launch that occurred just a couple of days ago. I'm kind of wondering why, given how meticulous the Chinese are about their space program, they did not put in um, a, a control factor that will allow them to burn the fuel remaining on board. Because after these launches, there's always fuel remaining. You never drain the tanks dry. And it doesn't take very much of a nudge with the engines on this rocket uh, to slow it down by you know, a few hundred miles an hour compared to its orbital velocity of something like 17,500 miles per hour to have it make a controlled reentry. And again, is this a deficiency in the design of the system or is this just the fact that that system is not working on this first launch of the core of the uh, Chinese space station? And given that China is a closed society, um, I have no way of knowing tonight, and I'm not sure that even the experts in the intel community know whether this was just an accident or this is part of a uh, kind of a design flaw that they didn't realize that if they're going to have 10 launches of 10 massive rockets to put up the mass of their space station, they need a way to control the reentry of the rocket once its job is done. Speaking of impact, Something else took place this week, uh, which was kind of curious. NASA ran, along with some international partners, a simulation of an asteroid impact on Earth, on Europe. And they concluded at the end of the simulation that they had no way of stopping the rock before it impacted the Earth, causing the detonation of the equivalent of a major thermonuclear explosion given the size of their uh, simulated asteroid in this scenario. And that, of course, raises all kinds of very intriguing questions. That's item number seven. Go read that carefully because the time frame they had projected was that one of the telescopes that's currently looking you know, into space like Pan Stars or some of the other 
survey telescopes picked up this object six months before impact, and as they refined the orbit, uh, it went from being possible to probable to being a certainty. But at the end of the simulation, um, we are told that they concluded that six months was not enough time to basically prepare a launch to go out and intercept this asteroid and do something to it, either destroy it, which is very hard. Even with nukes, it's very hard because you don't want to shatter it because then one object becomes, you know, dozens of objects and you wind up with that um, uh, scenario depicted in uh, that very good film, Deep Impact. Um, I would commend that to your attention. Your copious spare time, go take a look. Uh, that's the scenario you want to avoid, which is asteroid splitting or cometary nuclei splitting and becoming, uh, you know, multi-warhead uh, scenarios as opposed to one object entering. Um, they tried other deflection methods. The main problem was they couldn't get admission together in time in six months. One wonders why they didn't in their scenario build in a factor where a spacecraft was prepared waiting to go in case it just needed a rocket. And of course, you know where I'm going to say next. The one person they did not have in their scenario was a guy named Musk. Because I will bet dollars to Navy beans that if you gave this program to Musk and his geniuses there in Hawthorne, if they only had six months warning, they could devise a system that would launch a private mission to go out there and do something to deflect this asteroid um, in various creative ways that bureaucracies like NASA and maybe ESA did not consider. Now, I'm saying this without having seen all the documents from the scenario, from the simulation. So if I'm speaking out of turn, uh, I will apologize you know, beforehand, but I have a feeling that what Musk is demonstrating tonight, which is literally the um, entry of the first commercial crew in the modern history of spaceflight, not on a NASA-controlled spacecraft, but literally one controlled by a private commercial contractor like American Airlines or TWA or Pan American flying astronauts to and from the space station, except in this case it's a company called SpaceX, I guarantee you that Musk, given that he has demonstrated time and time again out-of-the-box thinking, an extraordinarily rapid turnaround compared to NASA. I mean, how long has NASA been working on the Artemis program compared to Musk working on Starship? And we're looking now, after just a year or two, of the first potential Starship in orbit from SpaceX in July so, you know, as a harbinger of things to come, private enterprise, and that's a nice ring to it, enterprise. Private enterprise is hands down the way to go because you have the inculcation of creativity and the streamlining of bureaucracy because of something called the bottom line. Anyway, um, I'll tell you what, um, I've almost used up now an hour <laughs> going through these various things. I think our various participants are going to be uh, uh, capable of uh, joining us at the top of the hour. 
those folks that uh, we've invited to be part of this uh, interesting new segment on what's going on on Mars, discovering, you know, new evidence of the so-called crystal cities of Barsoom. We'll explain all that. But what I want to do is I want you to point point you now to item number eight, because as you know, as part of the NASA Perseverance mission, it carried to Mars this little four pound helicopter called Ingenuity. And there has been a major change in the status of Ingenuity in the last couple of days. Remember, the original plan was that Ingenuity, we were told over and over and over again, it's going to just be a tech demonstrator. It's not a serious scientific tool. It carries no scientific instruments. It's a tech demo. It's a tech demonstrator. We want to see if we can fly a rotorcraft on Mars. Remember, Mars is so hard to fly on because it's got, you know, one hundredth the atmospheric pressure of the Earth, and you have to design it to be totally autonomous because of the time lag between Earth and Mars. You can't run it, you know, with a joystick. It's all got to be done by onboard computer. <clears throat> so they put the most sophisticated, you know, iPhone computer they could find into Ingenuity, which is something like a hundred times uh, more competent and faster than anything else that NASA is flying in the way of spacecraft computers. It's capable of doing corrections at something like 500 times per second. So um, with that in mind, take a look at number eight, because number eight is the successful fourth flight of Ingenuity, which took place a couple days ago. And this is a video created by one of the very uh, uh, competent citizen scientists over at uh, unmannedspaceflight.com. Uh, it's the compressed video from the mass cam and the nav cams on uh, perseverance of the flight of Ingenuity, the longest flight to date lasted about two minutes when we come back we're going to talk about times and atmospheres and all that and it also went out and back almost a thousand feet which is really interesting because um that distance of flying on a planet where the atmosphere is so thin that literally nothing to be able to fly is in and of itself a noteworthy historical achievement. So at number eight, there's the video. Take a look while we're going into our top of the hour break. And when we come back, we will be joined by other members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team and guests because we have a lot to talk about in terms of discovering, confirming, the existence of an ancient series of now long-lost civilizations on the planet Mars. And the Ingenuity helicopter, it turns out, is going to play a major, almost starring role. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. 
Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.